welcome to our Sage on Stage series presented by uh, AO North America, the Hand Education Committee. Tonight, our Sage is Dr. Jones, and he, he needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him an introduction shortly. Um, he's coming to us from California um, this afternoon or evening. Uh, I'm the interviewer. My name is Paul Binhammer, and Michael St. Cyr is our moderator this evening. Um, Dr. Jones has an illustrious career in hand surgery. He trained at Pittsburgh, UCLA, Irvine, and Santa Monica. He's got over 270, I'll say that again, 270 uh, journal articles and book chapters. He's had more than 700 presentations. So there's no way he can be nervous tonight. He's been, he's got this like grand slam of hand surgery, microsurgery, when, where he's been president both of the American Society for Reconstructive Microsurgery and ASSH. It's like a double whammy. So uh, thank you very much, Dr. Jones. Uh, thank you very much. And we're just thrilled that you're with us. And we're gonna put you um, to work right away. We're gonna ask you about a clinical scenario. We're gonna talk about uh, thumb CMC arthritis. And so you see a very active 60 year old who presents with dominant hand CMC arthritis and they've tried all sorts of conservative management and they still have uh, chronic pain and they have an x-ray which shows there's joint space narrowing and osteophytes greater than two millimeters. So I think this is a little bit of a controversial area. So I wonder if you could start us off by describing your preferred uh, treatment for this patient and how you come to that decision. Well, thank you, Paul, for the introduction. I actually lost a lot of it, uh, so the, uh, the sound was not coming through, so I hope it's on your end and not my end, but I'd like to thank you for uh, asking the questions and also especially AO North America for inviting me to, to be the sage. So this obviously is a very controversial area and um, I think it illustrates a total disconnect between what surgeons are doing in America and uh, evidence-based medicine. So I think there are two um, papers in the Journal of Hand Surgery. They're basically questionnaires of hand surgeons, I think in 2010 by Shaw Wilgus and then 2012 by um, uh, Jennifer Wolf, and about two-thirds, 66% in both those questionnaires were doing LRTIs, ligament reconstruction tendon interpositions. And then maybe about 15% were doing trapeziectomies without pinning, and another 15% were doing um, trapeziectomies with pinning. However, um, I would say that there are now very, very good studies, large studies from um, Tim Davis in Nottingham in England, looking at uh, prospective randomized trials of LRTIs versus trapeziectomies versus trapeziectomies with pinning, and there's absolutely no difference in outcome. So if as an organization we're going to say that we follow evidence-based medicine, we really shouldn't be doing LRTIs. Um, there's no evidence that they're any better than trapeziectomies. 
that being said, I personally have not done LRTIs maybe for 25 years or so. Um, the patients that some of the patients that have been operated on by other surgeons with LRTIs, and I'm seeing them for a second opinion, they seem to have a, a long duration of pain postoperatively, and they seem to be much stiffer postoperatively and have to have a lot of therapy. So I only do the LR component, the ligament reconstruction, and that's in the rare patients that you see with lupus or Elos Danlos syndrome. So what do I do now? Uh, I think for the last, and this will be controversial, for the last uh, 10, 12 years, I've been doing implant arthroplasties and I probably um, am able to say which one I use. I started off using um, the implants from Ascension that was eventually taken over by Integra. And those were the saddle implants and the uh, hemispheric implants. And uh, I've switched to one now, an implant um, by BioPro, which is a, a two component uh, implant. So if this person is, should we say a young 60, and he uh, wants to try and preserve as much strength in his thumb, then I would probably <sighs> offer him an implant arthroplasty. Uh, if he wanted the more guaranteed option, then I would offer him a trapeziectomy and I basically pin them for six weeks. Sometimes now I'm beginning to add a, um, a, a mini tightrope with that. Um, but I probably would say to him, if he's willing for me to try, then I would use an implant arthroplasty. Does it, um, so your post-op, regimen with those patients, do you move them early within a restricted motion or how do you treat them post-operatively? That, that's a good question. So the, the big problem with any implant, I think, uh, and there are various ones on the market now, uh, there are different ones in Europe. I think the, um, the worry is a dorsal dislocation. And if you look at I think the series out of the Mayo Clinic, um, they had something like a 19 or a 20% dislocation rate. So I tend to be very conservative and I actually splint them or cast them for six weeks. More recently, I actually operated on a, a surgeon and did both his thumbs staged and he was raring to go and <laughs> started uh, moving, I think, at three or four weeks. So nothing untoward came of that. And so I'm starting to uh, slowly reduce my period of immobilization. But I have had, um, I think my dislocation rate is probably around 2%. I've had two people, um, both who had trauma, one who fell about two weeks out and dislocated dorsally. And then an outlier, somebody who was three months out, was reaching a suitcase on a plane, and the the handle of the suitcase pushed her thumb into hyperextension, and she also dislocated. Um, but both we were able. Well, we changed their implants, and so far they're all they're both doing fine. But I think that is a it's a worry. And uh, do you see a role, um, or what um, is the role of CMC arthrodesis 
um, in for patients who have thumb arthritis? I tend to follow Peter Stern's advice uh, and recommendation that this should be considered in a young person, a young working person who probably has, you know, post-traumatic arthritis at his CMC joint. And um, I believe Peter, Peter, he's a great friend of mine. And uh, so I tend to follow his recommendation. Maybe the 60 year old would fall into that category. They, the new 60 is now the new 40. Um, but uh, I suppose you could offer this person an arthrodesis, but I've tended to keep it for a 20 or a 30 year old uh, working man. So um, if I can take you back a few years um, during your training, what were the factors that created your interest in becoming a hand surgeon? Uh, do you have an hour to go over this? <laughs> uh, it's long and convoluted, but I'll try and make it simple. You probably know that the, um, the training system in the UK when I was um, starting is very different. So everybody who's going to be a surgeon there has to do four or five years of general surgery. And that usually includes um, two, subspecialties, two subspecialities at a fairly advanced level. And then you get what's called the fellowship of the Royal College of Surgeons of London or Edinburgh or Glasgow, just like you have the one in Canada or Australia. And then you then subspecialize, you know, for another four or five years. So I knew I didn't want to do general surgery. I didn't want to be an abdominal surgeon. And I actually thought I would be a cardiac surgeon or a neurosurgeon and then lower down the list an, an orthopedic surgeon or a plastic surgeon. And so I did cardiac surgery and found that incredibly boring. It's, you know, two operations, probably a valve and a cabbage. The only interesting bit is congenital heart surgery. And then I did, I did a lot of neurosurgery um, and I thought it was always going to be very elegant. And it turned out apart from aneurysms and, and uh, extra intracranial anastomoses, it's not as elegant as people think. And it's also, the patient population can be very, very depressing, the prognosis for some of the head injuries and the, even the back surgeries. So then I um, spent six months as a registrar with Philip Matthews, who is probably should be recognized as one of the pioneers of flexor tendon healing research. And he, um, he introduced me to hand surgery and I suddenly realized this is great. You know, the anatomy is fantastic. You can see it. And then um, in the um, early 80s, microsurgery was just about to start to explode. And I thought, I have to get an entree into, into uh, microsurgery. And the way to do that was to go into plastic surgery. So then I'd sort of done, you know, neurosurgery, orthopedic surgery, plastic surgery. And I asked Adrian Flatt, um, you know, what he would do if he was going to go into hand surgery. And he said, um, we'll come to it maybe later, but basically he said um, that if I was moan, sorry, mainly plastic trained, I should work with an orthopedic surgery, surgeon. And he said the only person to train with at that time was Richard Smith. And uh, that's why I ended up in Boston. And, uh, and, and that's once I got exposed to Dr. Smith and obviously Jesse Jupiter was there just starting his practice, then 
um, hand surgery and microsurgery gave me everything. I could operate on bones, tendons, nerves, vessels. I could operate on a, a three-month-old baby. I could operate on a 90-year-old. And, um, and having the microsurgery, I could just about do anything. And there's a saying, hand surgery is anything you can get your hands on. So um, that's how I came to hand surgery. So it's now uh, 30 years later, about. Uh, if you had, like Adrian Flatt, some young trainee, what advice would you give to an orthopedic or plastic surgery resident that wants to be a hand surgeon? So, so I think I would still reiterate what Adrian Flatt told me. I think um, you need to go to a fellowship where hopefully you can get exposure to both an orthopedic trained hand surgeon and a plastic trained hand surgeon. And if you're a plastic resident, then I would say definitely go to a heavily orthopedic program. It's a little bit more difficult for orthopedic residents to get exposure to a plastic trained hand surgeon, but I think it's, it's really imperative. And if you really want to eventually, you know, get to, be the best in your field, I think you've got to have exposure to microsurgery and become very, very proficient in microsurgery. So um, this leads to this next question. So how should hand surgery fellowships manage that exposure and experience to orthopedic and plastic surgery principles and techniques, um, especially as you indicate that it's possible that programs may be challenged either in one way or the other way is, do you have any advice to programs not? Uh, well, far be it from me to <laughs> give advice to programs. I think there are several of us and, and it, it was part of my presidential address. I think, um, I think microsurgery is not um, being as well taught in America as it is now in lots of other countries, especially Asian countries, India, China, Korea, Japan, Taiwan. And I think we're falling behind a little bit. It may be due to the training, but it may be due to lots of other factors like lifestyle, reimbursement, even the, the medical legal climate. But for a young person, um, I think it's, it's imperative that they try and get exposure to both the orthopedic and the, the plastic surgery side. And so programs really need to become combined programs, completely collaborative between the two parent specialties. And obviously there's money involved and there's uh, reputations involved and so there are some programs that are totally combined and there are some that are very stringently one or the other. Um, but I think the, the best programs are combined and hopefully in the future, more programs will adopt that concept. And hopefully in the future, um, we'll see much better microsurgical training. So do you think um, microsurgical training should be, um, and I'm gonna use this word, a mandatory, like a microsurgery course, should be a mandatory part of fellowship? Um, absolutely. I think absolutely a, an orthopedic resident going into a hand fellowship should do a one week microsurgery course 
but that's not enough. I think they've got to go to a lab in the hand fellowship program institution and hopefully, you know, every week do a couple of hours as well as hopefully being exposed to microsurgical operations within that fellowship program. And similarly, I think it's, it's important that um, a plastic trained resident coming into a hand fellowship do an AO course um, before they come into a fellowship program. Although obviously with craniofacial surgery, I think now plastic residents have more concept of AO principles than you know, even 10, 20 years ago. Do you think, um, so this is the last hand fellowship related question. Do you think um, hand surgery residency in the US is a possibility within the near future? And is this a good idea or a bad idea? Uh, I think- I'm trying not to get you into too much hot water. Right, right, right. <laughs> Uh, again, this is very diplomatic, but I think Bob Zabo, when he was president of the Hand Society, I can't remember what year, but um, he had the idea of developing uh, hand surgery as a specialty and as an independent residency right after you've done you know, your first year of internship. And as part of that, there would be you know, a hand um, surgery board and a board examination. Uh, but I don't think it got very much traction. And I personally don't think it's a good idea. I, th I think there are programs around the world where it has been instituted and Singapore is the classic example. And there they do a hand residency. And many of the Singaporean hand surgeons are incredibly well trained in both the orthopedic and the plastic surgery side of hand surgery. But I think it has limitations in America because many um, hand surgeons will, if they're orthopedic, they'll go into an orthopedic practice and that orthopedic practice will want them to take care, let's say of um, tibial fractures, you know, one, one day a month or something like that. And if they've done the hand surgery residency, they're not going to be able to do that. They're not going to be useful to that private practice. And you can, you know, you can apply that same limitation to a private practice um, plastic hand surgeon. He's not going to be able to make up some of the money by sewing up lacerations of the lip uh, in the emergency room. So I, I think it's a dead issue in America, but I may be wrong. So um, let's see if Michael has any uh, questions. Michael, are you there? Yeah, we have a question from uh, Peter Remick. Uh, Peter asks, uh, Dr. Jones, the history of implants for CMC uh, osteoarthritis has been, has been pretty difficult and challenging. Uh, what do you feel um, about your results? Uh, are they good? Is this based on a new design, a new technique? Uh, or is there another factor that, that has increased your success given the difficult history of uh, CMC implants? Well, there's... I totally agree with the uh, the the question that it's had a um, a controversial history. No, no question. I think the the implants have improved, and um, I 
I started fiddling around with implants when um, there was a, a ceramic, um, like a marble, a little uh, ball, which was called the orthosphere. And um, the first few patients I did were, had remarkable results um, uh, clinically. <clears throat> and um, they needed very little immobilization. They had excellent function. Um, but if you looked at their x-rays and there was a paper that came out looking at, I think, eight patients or so, then you'd start to see this um, erosion and lucency or lucency first and then erosion both into the uh, base of the metacarpal and then into the, um, into the trachea. So I stopped doing that after that paper. Um, and now um, I always thought that the best implant was an implant that was called the saddle implant, which just had a stem that went up the thumb metacarpal. You did nothing to the trapezium and then the saddle sat on the remaining or what is called the cartilaginous remaining, uh, remaining surface of the trapezium. And those patients um, um, did extremely well. And you saw very little lucency up in the, um, in the um, thumb metacarpal. But then that implant was taken off the market. I, and I don't know why. Um, I think it was probably because of low sales. Um, but certainly some surgeons that were doing them in Europe had similar experiences I did and, and were very pleased. Um, and then I've, uh, and so after the saddle was taken off, I switched to this um, other company called BioPro. And um, the, the, the BioPro is, um, is a two component system. So you can have different sizes for the stem and this hemispheric implant that sits like an acetabulum in the trapezium. I tend to take as little of the trapezium as possible and I try and sit the implant as palmally as I can and also um, as ulnarly as I can. And, and then I really um, take a lot of effort in recreating or reconstructing a dorsal capsule. And um, so far we're out at about um, I think either 11 or 12 years. And as I say, the only two dislocations I've had, and I've had to remove one um, for, um, uh, for excessive bone formation around the trapezium and the base of the metacarpal. This woman had a, a, a propensity to develop ectopic calcification in other joints. And she did the same thing with the, uh, the CMC joint. So I just tell the patients, you know, this is still experimental. I say the fallback is if it goes wrong, you take it out and just take out the trapezium. So mm -hmm. apart from having a little bit of shortening of the thumb compared with doing an initial trapeziectomy, I don't think there's much downside. downside. Great. Thank you. I think that answers Peter's question very well. Um, thank you, Dr. Jones. Have you, have you made any modifications to your technique, you know, over the last 12 years or it, it, it's pretty much standardized since the very beginning? Have you, have you had any little caveats that you could share with the audience in terms of things that you, that, that you wouldn't do anymore um, to improve success? Uh, I think the main ones are, um, <clears throat> uh, well, I think the two main ones are once you put any implant in, 
and I think it applies to all the various implants, you have to move the thumb into adduction and abduction and make absolutely sure that there's no impingement between the base of the, um, the thumb metacarpal and the remaining rim of the acetabulum of the trapezium. And if there is, then you have to you know, use a ronger or an oscillating saw to remove that uh, impingement. And now the beauty with this um, two component system that I'm using now is you can actually increase the, not the size of the head, but the, the length of the head or the okay. depth of the head. So you can actually expand the long axis of the thumb metacarpal in a way, and you can uh, pre prevent that impingement between the, the bone of the thumb metacarpal and the trapezium. So that's, that's key. And then the other one is um, that dorsal capsule and that periosteum uh, on the base of the thumb metacarpal, you've got to keep that as thick as possible. And you've got to try and get a really um, tight closure of that to prevent a dorsal dislocation. Yeah. What I do now is I actually drill two holes in the base of the thumb metacarpal dorsally, and I advance part of the APL tendon and the dorsal capsule. So again, I'm tightening that into extension at the CMC joint. And I'm very careful to tell them the patients not to do any passive flexion, just do active flexion for three months before they do any passive flexion and tell them that it will feel tight and it'll gradually loosen up over time. Great, thank you very much. Thank you. That's uh, a history of success. Yeah, 12 years you said. Super. So um, I'm going to ask you a different clinical scenario now. Um, and I wondered if you could discuss some perspectives on the management of a case uh, that involves a humerus fracture. So a 30-year-old is referred six months after mid-shaft humerus fracture. The fracture was plated and the surgeon noted that there was a divided radial nerve with a 10-centimeter gap. So can you tell us um, how you would manage this patient as he presents now with a radial nerve deficit and particularly with regards to um, the variables of age, uh, time since injury, and the nerve gap distance affect your decisions in surgical management for this patient? Well, it's a great question, and it, it's uh, probably for all the residents and fellows, it's something that you're probably going to get asked on your boards. Um, so I think probably there's a failure of treatment right to begin with. Um, why is this person six months out and nothing's been done? And probably if the uh, fracture was being plated and there was a, um, a 10 centimeter gap, then you could make an argument at that stage, this person's only 30, let's graph this at the same time. If you don't do that, why don't you do, you know, consider tendon transfers even before six months. But to take the question as it is, <clears throat> I think it's pretty well um, acknowledged that the success of a nerve graft is really dependent on three, on three factors. One being younger than age 20, so probably everybody listening in is over the uh, hill. Um, two, 
probably the nerve graft should be done within three months of the, uh, the injury. And uh, number three, the nerve graft or the nerve gap rather should be less than five centimeters. So even at 30, this man is over the hill theoretically uh, and the nerve gap is 10 centimeters. So what I would do to him, I would say, um, first of all, wear a splint on your wrist just to cock your wrist back 20 degrees. I don't use those dynamic outriggers for the fingers. They look fancy, but nobody uses them. They're too clumsy and cumbersome. And then I would um, say to him, there are probably three options for you. Number one, we could go back and nerve graft you, but 10 centimeters is a long graft and you're you know, six months out and you're 30, but it's a possibility if you want to consider it, it will probably take you you know, upwards of nine months or a year to see some um, restoration of wrist extension and finger extension. Um, number two, I would say we can do tendon transfers for you and those are much more guaranteed. And I tend to use standard Watson Jones transfers. So I use pronator teres to ECRB. I use uh, FCU, not around the ulnar border, but through the interosseous membrane um, to EDC. And then I reroute EPL onto the volar forearm to Palmaris if they have it. And then I would say, <clears throat> excuse me, number three, there is some interest now in nerve transfers and uh, you, we could potentially use some of the nerves that normally supply muscles in your anterior forearm supplied by the median nerve, switch them to the, the nerves that control wrist extension and finger and thumb extension and wait maybe nine months and see if we get re-innovation of those muscles. But I, would probably try and push him towards tendon transfers because you can get back function, you know, within six to 12 weeks of the surgery. And it's relatively guaranteed that you can get, I think, very, very good results of wrist extension um, and finger and thumb extension. So you would um, push a quick functionality and certainty uh, to me, yes. If it was me as the patient, I would want that rather than something where you're guessing on the result and the result is not going to come for nine months to a year. And it may, it's just like free flap surgery. Sometimes the, well, the great majority of free flaps work, but if you're that one or two or 3% where a free flap fails, you have a hundred percent failure. And I think you have to look at um, a nerve graft of 10 centimeters and even the nerve transfers, there is the possibility of a hundred percent failure. So now you're, you're, you're a year down the road and now you have to consider tendon transfers. So if you're willing to waste a year of your life, then by all means, go ahead and do that. So um, this sort of segues into the next question, which is um, during your years of practice, what are the biggest changes you've seen in hand surgery exclusive of microsurgery? What? Uh, that's interesting. I, it's, uh, I, I recently gave a lecture 
um, on uh, entitled operations I no longer or rarely perform. And it's amazing how, how many, I think I had 16 or so. And, and that segues a little bit into your question, but there've been unbelievable changes in hand surgery. Um, I would say, and I'll just mention a few, but if you think about rheumatoid hand surgery, that was incredibly common. I would do, you know, maybe one or two um, PIP or MCP joint implants every week with, with Dr. Smith. And now it's a rare case. You know, you may do one a year, maybe if you're really lucky for a year. And many, um, I think many hand fellows rarely see these um, PIP and MCP joint arthroplasties. So that's been revolutionized by, you know, the various pharmacological agents for rheumatoid. Um, I've been through the entire pendulum of uh, distal radius fracture treatment. I, um, I was in at the start of uh, K-wires and plaster. I was in the era of external fixators. I was in the era of um, dorsal plates and pie plates. And now we're, you know, with Vola uh, fixed angle locking plate. So I'm sure there's going to be another pendulum swing in another few years time. Um, internal fixation devices have changed for the better. Um, we have headless screws for scaphoids and four corner fusions. Um, we have, you know, low profile dynamic compression plating and lock plates. Um, I think nerve transfers have come along uh, and I think um, they don't work all the time, but I'm very impressed by the Oberlin transfer for a C5-6 brachial plexus. Um, I've had some spectacular results and I've had some total duds. And the same thing with um, using the, um, the terminal branch of the anterior nerve for the motor branch of the ulnar nerve. Again, um, some unbelievable results, but some <laughs> complete failures. Um, I think um, Dupatrons has changed. Uh, I think still I do a lot of Dupatron surgery, but I think in some people um, you can get excellent results with needle aponeurotomies and obviously collagenase has come along. Um, I think wrist arthroscopy is a massive improvement uh, for certainly for diagnosing um, wrist pain and maybe sometimes treating it. Um, and then uh, even things like the um, evolution of uh, myoelectric prostheses has, uh, has changed, um, you know, for, for patients with amputations and certainly forearm amputations. So um, that's a, a quick trip, I think, through things that have changed. That's, that's such a great response because it shows how dynamic the specialty is. And if you're just sitting at one point in time, you don't have that perspective of that, in fact, it is a truly evolved. Sorry, I think I've lost you. Hey, Paul, we lost your volume. I'm still here. I got you back. How's that? Yes, that's great. Well, I, I just thought that was such a great answer because um, hand surgery is just, if you just 
are sitting in it, you may not appreciate how dynamic it's been and what um, an evolving specialty and it keeps you on your toes. Absolutely. And the, and the residents and the fellows keep you on your toes. <laughs> so how, how important has microsurgery been to the development of hand and upper extremity surgery? Uh, well, again, at the risk of uh, offending various of my friends, <laughs> I, th I personally think that, and I think I said this in my presidential address, I think antibiotics is probably the number one advance in hand surgery. Uh, and the number two advance, or certainly the, the most important advance since antibiotics has been microsurgery. And lots of people say, oh, that's ridiculous. You know, what about... Um, plates and screws and, um, and distal radius uh, volar plate, lock it, you know, locking plates. That, that only treats a very, very, it, it treats a lot of patients, obviously, but it only treats a minute area of, uh, of patients' problems in the hand. And if you look at microsurgery, it has really um, revolutionized lots of different areas of, of hand surgery that before would almost certainly result in um, either an amputation of the upper extremity or uh, complete loss of, let's say, sensation and a totally uh, non-functional upper extremity. So that would be my argument why microsurgery has, um, is the number one advance after antibiotics. Um, and so where have we failed uh, to significantly progress hand surgery, or conversely, where do we really need to push research to improve outcomes in hand and upper extremity surgery? Can I just go back to the last question, just to emphasize something, yeah. before I get an irate, irate, sorry, an irate text from uh, somebody? I, I mean, if you look at microsurgery. Um, in terms of replantation and revascularization, you can get spectacular results now um, of you know, uh, radiocarpal amputations, multiple finger amputations, even amputations up at the elbow, um, free flaps for coverage of trauma, um, uh, both in the upper and lower extremity of salvaged uh, extremities that are very functional. Um, free bone transfers, vascularized fibular transfers have revolutionized not only trauma, but more importantly, tumor resections. Now you can salvage um, arms and legs for that matter with um, vascularized fibular transfers. And then in brachial plexus, you can use vascularized functioning free muscle transfers. Um, and then just in the whole gamut of nerves, just using the microscope, um, just group fascicular nerve uh, repairs or group fascicular nerve grafting. Um, and then obviously nerve transfers have grown out of using the microscope. And then obviously toe to hand transfers, not only for amputations, but um, for congenital um, children, or for children with congenital deformities. To answer your question, where have we failed? Um, I think it's not a failure of the surgery. I think um, where we failed at are probably three big areas. One, we, we as hand surgeons do not have the research to um, learn about modulating scar formation after any hand operation. So any hand operation 
that you can do can be totally disrupted by scar formation. And obviously everybody thinks of um, flexor tendon repairs, but even if you put a plate on, you know, on a proximal phalanx or a, um, a metacarpal, you poor range of motion just because of scar formation. So if we modulate that, we would improve our results remarkably. Number two, um, I think we have got to the limits of nerve repairs under the microscope. And I think the future again is going to be more um, molecular biology research or pharmacological research where we can um, use nerve growth factors maybe with intubulation um, and somehow um, direct the motor axons to the correct um, destination and the sensory axons to the the correct destination. And then I think even more importantly, the future will be a, an interface between um, the end of a nerve and maybe some computer application so that there's a, a, uh, an amputated or a neuroma nerve that somehow then controls a, a dynamic prosthesis. So I would say scar modulation, nerve uh, manipulation, uh, and then the nerve computer interface. Oh, sounds sounds great. So I can't wait to get there. We may not be there when we may not be around when it comes. So um, uh, I'd like to ask you a question, sort of outside of hand surgery. It's a, a it's a clinical case of a 25 year old who's four months following a motorcycle, resulting in a knee dislocation. And he has no fibular nerve function um, clinically or on EMG. And I wondered what your approach is to patients with fibular nerve injuries associated with knee dislocations. Um, well, obviously, uh, it depends on whether you as a hand surgeon uh, get consulted on a knee dislocation. But um, certainly for the residents and fellows, um, the perineal, the common perineal nerve is the most frequently damaged structure with knee dislocations. And you can see in, um, incidences up to, you know, 40% of knee dislocations. And so um, I personally believe that hand surgeons are the best surgeons to repair or reconstruct a nerve. Um, and so this is a pure example of anything you can get your hands on. And I think you're the right person as a hand surgeon to deal with the perineal nerve. So in this clinical scenario, I think you're absolutely obligated to explore the nerve, to try and delineate the mechanism of injury. And the mechanism of injury could be something as simple as just displacement of the, the fracture of the, the fibular head or the neck. And if you can, obviously then the knee surgeon can fix the fracture and you can separate the nerve and maybe get, you know, complete return of function. You may have, um, because of the, a hematoma or swelling, you may have just a compression of the nerve as it enters um, perineus longus. And again, just a simple decompression may restore nerve function. However, I think there's a pretty high incidence of um, a stretch mechanism 
and the nerve, the, com the common perineal nerve is obviously in a way fixed at two points at its origin from the sciatic nerve and then where it enters um, the peroneus longus. So you can have stretches, you know, seven, 10 centimeters long. And if the nerve is intact, there's not much you can do because you can't really delineate the, um, the uh, extent of the injury. And then obviously the nerve can be ruptured um, both um, serially at, from the sciatic nerve or um, inferiorly at the peroneus longus um, entrance. And then you might be able to do some sort of um, nerve grafting. And then I think the, the next step is uh, whether there are nerve transfers, um, you know, taking a fascicle from flexor digitorum longus and flipping it into the motor nerve to tibialis anterior. I think that is it in it, sorry, is in its infancy, but I think that's something that might be considered. And then the standard obviously is if you see a tremendous stretch injury or a complete rupture that requires a, a long segment of nerve grafting, then the conventional treatment is tendon transfers where you know, the foot and ankle surgeon switches uh, tibialis posterior to tibialis anterior. Right. But I think, I think the answer to your question is um, probably we should be involved as hand surgeons in doing most peripheral nerve surgery. And um, in this particular scenario, um, we should explore the nerve and try and delineate the, what's gone on with the nerve. Thanks. That's great. Um, so I wonder if you could um, put into perspective hand surgery and microsurgery on a global perspective. And um, because you sort of alluded to studies elsewhere in the world and how we learn from each other and importantly, how we discern what will work in our own part of the world. Um, when we read the literature or hear from international hand surgeons? So I think I've alluded to this already. I think certainly in, um, should we say bread and butter hand surgery, we can hold our heads high uh, with any other, um, you know, countries around the world. I think we, and, I'm, and I don't think it's just me, but there are several other people in that in the hand society who believe we have maybe fallen behind in the microsurgical applications in hand surgery compared with, uh, as I say, India, China, Japan, Korea, Taiwan. And, and it's not just those countries that have these high volumes. It's, it's even going to countries like Vietnam and uh, Thailand, which are supposedly underdeveloped where their level of microsurgical expertise in, let's say, brachial plexus reconstruction, um, certainly um, salvage of upper and lower extremities um, and toe transfers, all those, we do not, we don't compete with them in terms of volume and in terms of, of the latest um, advances. So, um, so I think we, I've always believed that, um, that we have a lot to learn. American surgeons have a lot to learn from other surgeons from around the world. And whether it's from India or China or Thailand, 
we should be receptive to these surgeons. And, and when I was president of the Hand Society, I, I mandated that every panel and every instructional course should have a, an international member um, as a panelist. And um, it was interesting. I got a lot of backlash for that, but I, I really believe we, we, we learn as much from them as they learn from us. Um, that being said, there are some things that maybe that are, that are done um, in China or India or Japan or Korea that may be too much, let's say, for either American surgeons or American patients. And, and again, that may be related to the medical legal climate. But um, for instance, you know, there are, um, let's say, across C7, um, brachial plexus um, re-innovation um, may is done by a few people in this country but may not be uh, accepted by a lot of surgeons or, or even patients um, double toe transfers second third toe transfers um, can have remarkable functional results but it's very hard to convince an American patient to give up his second and third toes um, and then even things like, um, you know, probably the best results for brachial plexus are doing operations like the Rambo operation, doing, you know, double free muscle transfers. And again, um, obviously, um, Alan Bishop and, and Alex Shin are doing them at the Mayo Clinic. Um, and I think you guys do them in Toronto. But uh, again, there are very few surgeons who are willing to do them in in America and patients who are willing to um, to undergo them. So I think we definitely learn from from um, hand surgeons overseas. Um, some of those we can adopt. Some of them may be a little bit too um, pushing the boundary for American surgeons or American patients. So um, part of your career has been an interest in global health as it relates to hand surgery. How has this sort of personally impacted your career? Uh, well, uh, that's hard, hard to answer. I think I've always been interested in, in passing it on or giving it back. Um, and that really pertains mainly to um, teaching orthopedic residents, plastic residents, hand fellows in this country, in America. Um, but I think we we also have an obligation to to give that expertise or pass that expertise on to um, other countries where there may be no hand surgeons or no hand surgery expertise. Obviously, that's going to change as time goes on. But you know, there are lots of countries uh, where there are no hand surgeons. Um, and so, for example, Cambodia, um, and I was introduced going to Cambodia by the Dr. Smith's fellow after me, uh, Graham Gumley, who's an Australian hand surgeon in Sydney, and who had, um, had worked in Cambodia just after the, um, after it was opened up after the uh, Vietnamese occupation. Um, so I've been going with Graham for, to Cambodia, to Phnom Penh for maybe 12 years now. Um, and then I started doing, going to other countries and teaching and operating. And um, for example, last year I went to um, Cambodia, Nepal, 
um, Jordan, and then I spent and a, and a week in the Vatican. So I four different weeks, and maybe in those four weeks, I probably benefited um, certainly a few surgeons in those countries, but I probably benefited um, them learning how to do an operation more than maybe you know 48 weeks back at uh, UCLA. So it's all a question of passing on the ability to do maybe just very simple operations. Um, but if you look at Cambodia, you know, we started teaching very simple operations like ORIF of, um, of fractures, tendon repairs, nerve repairs, release of bone scar contractures. And as those local surgeons become more proficient, then you can take them on to do, you know, a one bone forearm or um, a policization or even now um, microsurgery. Uh, and so you can, in a way, um, if you're going every year and you're maintaining follow-up on those patients, you can almost build a, a type of residency in another country, even if you're going just one week a year. Wow. That's great. Um, so do you think um, there's a role for global health enhanced surgery fellowships? That's yeah, another controversial question. Uh, I think by that you mean, should we be taking fellows on missions? And I have some very definite thoughts on that. Yes, we can take fellows and we actually do. Um, we take you know, one fellow to Cambodia, sometimes two. Um, and I took a fellow to the Vatican, but I, I think they need to be, their role is as, um, as a, an assistant or a teacher. And, and probably their most important role is as a teacher because they can, they have, um, you know, very ready-made empathy and, and association with, let's say, the young residents, um, far more than an old guy like me. Um, and so they can, you know, give very simple lectures uh, to those young trainees in that particular country. But I, where I have big ethical problems, and it applies not just to hand surgery, it applies to other things like cleft surgery, um, our main goal is to teach the local um, surgeons not to take a fellow to Cambodia so that he can do a policization, if you get my meaning. Yes. And that, that's where I have really grave reservations. Um, uh, and then as we've actually, in Cambodia, for instance, that we take now sometimes seven or eight hand surgeons, upper extremity surgeons, and I think two or three, yeah, maybe two or three or even four of the, the current seven or eight are people who are fellows with either Dr. Gumley or myself. Um, and so, you know, one's from Australia, one's from Thailand. Um, so in a way it's an inbuilt training and, and they write, they, by coming as a fellow, they see the attraction and they're then much more qualified once they become an attending and then they become part of the team again. So um, I think we have a couple of uh, follow-up clinical questions. 
So um, I'm going to turn it over to Michael. Dr. Jones, one of, one of the questions uh, comes from a Sorry, this, this, oh, sorry. So this comes from uh, Emil Venusian, who's asking, "How do you how do you think that hand surgery education and fellowship will evolve uh, in the future?" Sorry, can you you broke a little bit, so I missed part. Uh, how do you how do you think, Dr. Jones, that hand surgery education and uh, fellowships will evolve in the future? In America or uh, elsewhere? Uh, let, let, you know, Two-part question, in America and also internationally. Right. Uh, so uh, in America, I think um, hopefully uh, they will see the attraction of, of uh, combining orthopedic surgery and plastic surgery so that fellows get access to or expertise from both of the parent specialties, I would hope that um, people will see the uh, necessity of microsurgical training and hand fellowships. Not everybody has to go out and do replants. And in, in any case, the volume of replantation is, is going way down in a lot of developed countries, not just America, but also Europe. Um, and uh, I think, uh, other than that, it will be more a question of uh, whether hand fellowship, and for that matter, any fellowship training is going to be paid by the government. That will have repercussions. And how many years of um, postgraduate training will be covered by the government? If that come in, then that will have significant repercussions on people doing hand fellowships, or for that matter, other fellowships but it may mean that we are training um, less hand surgeons than we are currently. In terms okay, of other countries, in terms of other countries um, there are obviously extremely good fellowship programs in other countries and, and some Americans um, go to those fellowships to get even more training than let's say their one year in America. And, and actually, for that reason, we developed the American Society for Surgery of the Hand International Hand Surgery Fellowship. So um, we, every year we have selected three young superstars, American um, trained hand surgeons within five years of being their fellowship. And then two of them go to China for three months and one goes to India for three months. And basically, India and China have very, very high volumes of hand surgery and microsurgery. And so those um, international hand fellows actually are able to operate in China and India as an assistant rather than the usual fellowship flight, the Bunnell Fellowship, which is just for um, meeting people and lectures. And so the six ASSH um, international fellows that have returned have um, already transferred some of the expertise that they've learned from India and China back to their parent institutions. And I hope that we will continue that and continue the funding for that, because that will also help in the future development of, um, of microsurgery and hand surgery in America. Perfect. Thank you. Great.
So I have a, another question here, and it relates to the um, the perineal nerve injury. And Dr. Chai Mudgal asks, does he have a limit of gap that he will graft on a common perineal nerve injury in a knee dislocation? Um, well, obviously, the <laughs> I'm going to go against what I've told you. Uh, I think the answer is anything over five centimeters, and that's borne out, I think, by some of the studies on the perineal nerve. Um, anything over five centimeters is like tossing a coin. And as many of these are um, very difficult to determine the extent of the injury, and some of them are actually ruptures from within the sciatic nerve, then I think while you're there, you probably have to do some sort of long graft, but I think the chances of success are very, very limited. Um, so I, th I think to answer the question, when you're there, you make a decision as to whether you can define the injury. And if you're there, you graft whatever it is, whether it's three centimeters, five centimeters, 11 centimeters, uh, but as you go from 3 to 11, the chances of any um, recovery drop off dramatically. So uh, it's been an hour, but it seems like it's gone really quick. Do you have any final thoughts you want to pass on, let the audience know? Uh, no, I think um hand surgery is uh definitely a um a fabulous specialty to be in because you can do so much and i don't think it's standing still i think there are going to be developments from the time you finish a fellowship to the time you finish your eventual career and it's just a question of of um being able to go with the flow and not just be restricted by the 10 common operations that you were taught in fellowship. And hopefully you will, um, you will evolve as I have, as I have, and as I'm sure have you. Um, and I think um, it's, it's um, a specialty where we still need a few people to keep pushing the boundaries because if we don't push the get boundaries it's going to get boring. Yeah, I agree 100%. So thank you. You didn't ask me about the ulnar nerve, but that's fine. <laughs> well, um, I'm happy to ask the, that one last question. You want to hit a home run? So this is a, one last clinical case for us. It's a 40-year-old who sustains a clean laceration 10 centimeters proximal to the cubital tunnel. It's easily repairable. What is your approach to the anterior interosseous transfer in this situation? So, um, so the, the man is 40 over the hill. The, um, <laughs> the location is 10 centimeters above the elbow. So that means even if you repair the nerve, the chances of re-innovation of the intrinsic muscles of the hand are going to take well over a year, and even with the best repair and the, the fastest possible re-innovation, 
by the time the reinnovation gets to the hand, the motor end plates uh, have degenerated. So I, I would definitely repair the nerve. I, I, I don't think I would not repair the nerve. Um, I would splint the elbow for three weeks to stop any traction on the, on the repair itself. And then at three weeks, I would um, put the patient in a low profile lumbrical block splint. So I'd block the MP joints at um, 70 or 90 and allow him to extend the IP joints. And, and the reason I do that in all the nerves is it, it tightens up the MP joint volar plate and it might just prevent clawing of the fingers if you institute it early and you continue it for many, many months. And then um, at about three months, I would um, check on whether he has any return of um, FDP function to the small finger or to the ring finger. If he did, that's indicating that my repair is, is working and there's some re-innovation of the, the proximal FDP muscles. But I would tell him that um, he's not gonna get back intrinsic function we might be able to prevent the clawing with the, um, with the lumbrical block splint, but I would talk to him about a, um, a nerve transfer of the branch of the anterior enterosis to the pronator, and then co-op that to the motor branch of the ulnar nerve. And if I was going to do that, I would do it end to end. I don't think there's anything to lose by going end to end, and there's probably more to gain. But I would tell him, again, it's, not quite like tossing a coin, but it may work. It may work spectacularly and it may not work. Um, so that would be my treatment for him. And so in follow-up, do you see the AIN uh, supercharged end to side transfer in other clinicals, not direct repair, but end to side? Do you use it in other clinical situations? Uh, I have done uh, a few enterocytes, and again, enterocyte is controversial compared with end-to-end. -end. But the, um, the the ones that I may consider it in, if you have a little bit lower uh, laceration, let's say in the proximal or middle thirds of the forearm, uh, then I will repair the on the nerve and then um, talk to them about doing an end to side um, at a second stage, not at the same time. Um, and so that's one indication. The second indication, uh, I see a fair number of people with um, uh, failures of, of uh, cubital tunnel releases. And if you're seeing somebody second or third time and they have you know, intrinsic weakness or intrinsic atrophy, especially, then if that person is relatively young, you may think about doing an end to side uh, AIN to the motor, well, to the, where you think the motor branch of the ulnar nerve is. Um, and similarly, there are some patients with um, terrible diabetic neuropathy with intrinsic atrophy, um, where I think that they may be a candidate for the same sort of thing release their carpal tunnel, release their cubital tunnel, and at the same time do a, um, an enterocyte babysitter. I haven't done it yet, but I'm thinking about it. Um, That's great. 
Thank you so much for this evening. It's very much appreciated and very well received. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's been fun doing it. A lot of controversial questions and probably I'm going to get lots of angry emails and uh, texts. <laughs>